Hi guys, just a quick notice that um, any of the views discussed in this episode are just the views of private individuals um, and do not represent any of the views of organisations with which we are associated. Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of Things We Find Interesting. Um, we're back again with Matt for the second time. Say hello, Matt. Hello, great to, great to be back on. Um, hopefully you enjoyed the last episode we had Matt on. Um, if you remember, we were talking about um, some of the conflicts in Ukraine. Um, we're going to carry on talking about what we think is going on over there, in, in, in which we think is quite an interesting subject for you all. And this time we're going to take a little bit more of a slightly different focus, though, um, and we're going to look at some of the emerging trends that have come out in the in the last few weeks. Um, we've seen the Russians um, formally annex parts of the Donbass, um, eastern uh, Ukraine, uh, and particularly what we're going to talk about today is there's been veiled threats of use of nuclear weapons. It feels like we've gone back to an era of the Cold War where people used to dig bunkers in their gardens, Matt. Quite scary times uh, to be alive in the world. What, what do you think? It is scary, but I think we're also quite far removed from that threat. You know, we've moved on a good 30 years from the Cold War. I think people have forgotten what the fear of that feels like and perhaps, you know, the realism of the danger of what could happen um, perhaps has leached away from society a bit. And I suspect, you know, probably our parents' generation feel more aware of that threat than we do. But I think it's important to talk about, you know, what the actual threat is, how that could impact on the conflict and us. Yeah, they call it uh, like civil resilience, you know, which was the thing. You, see, you saw those kind of quite creepy videos back in the, in the Cold War um, in the 1960s, 1970s, of uh, school children being instructed to do what happens when a nuclear blast goes off and you've got to hide under the table and close your eyes and things like that. Um, and there's also there was all sorts of interesting things. Actually, if, if you're um, a slightly uh, someone who's really into your history, you can actually look up online um, for nuclear shelters across the UK. Um, sorry, shelters is the wrong word. Uh, nuclear observation posts. So littered across the UK, where, where we're from, um, there's a series of these small little bunkers where basically teams of volunteers would sort of rotate through shifts on and they'd have loads of sort of like seismic equipment and stuff, essentially with the viewpoint that if uh, Britain got attacked in a nuclear event, they would lose all the, they'd lose all communications. Um, you'd have a, effectively like an, an EMP, as it's called, an electromagnetic pulse, and they thought they'd lose all the communications. And it'd be really hard to like work out where had been hit and by what sort of scale of nuclear. They wouldn't have even known what's happened. So these um, small little observation posts across the UK um, would kind of track the seismic events and, and basically be able to kind of triangulate and plot the size of, of nuclear devices to work out how badly Britain had been hit. And they're still in existence. And a lot of them are like open. You can go down there and kind of go for a little trip back it, back through history. Um and there's all sorts of things like, you know, the air raid siren system that they sort of developed in the Second World War and kept going through the Cold War. That's now kind of completely, completely gone. You know, modern day Britain would not know what to do in a nuclear attack. Um, quite interesting times. Although what we're talking about in Ukraine, as we'll come on to now, isn't necessarily, isn't necessarily you know, to sort of comfort people, that nuclear apocalypse 
apocalyptic scenario of, of uh, you know, giant bombs landing on, on London and, and Moscow, um, we may be talking about a slightly different type of nuclear warfare, um, if that's right. So I, I think it's, it's firstly interesting to, to go into, but why are we talking about this at the moment? What, what's changed in, in, in the war in Ukraine? Um, why has this suddenly become a thing that's being talked about uh, quite a lot? Yeah, I mean, there's been a long lead into this point. Um, and for those that haven't been following the conflict, we've seen a steady degradation of Russian forces, both in the east and the south, forces withdrawing. And that means that the regime back at home are coming under pressure because it's the hardliners of Russian society that really support the war. Um, and seeing these losses is not what they want to see. Now, we're all very familiar with our last episode of where we talked about the mobilization, and that's aiming to you know support the Russian forces on the front line and move things along. But we have seen other veiled threats from the Russian state about use of nuclear weapons and some less uh, veiled ones from the, the Chechen leader who very specifically stated that Russia should start using nukes. Now, when we're talking about this, it's not, as you say, about Armageddon um, and seeing Russia launch a huge plethora of nukes from facilities across the country and from localised positions. We're looking at much smaller weapons. Now, although when they get compared to tonnage of TNT, it looks like a huge explosion. One thing that's important to remember is that actually a lot of the explosion gets lost up to the atmosphere, but that also means that that helps spread radiation. Yeah, and I think there's a bit of an inverse square law with the um, the energy of the, you know, the size of the nuclear device, which they'll compare to like Hiroshima or something like that, and they'll say this nuclear weapon is 100 times more powerful than, um, than Hiroshima, but that kind of gives actually like a sort of 10 times yield. Um, yeah. Oh, old uh, Razam Kad uh, to look up his his name because I couldn't I could, probably couldn't pronounce it. and I'll probably smash it. Up. I just avoided it because I wasn't sure I could pronounce it correctly. Yeah, Ramzan <laughs> Kadyrov. Um, yeah, the leader of Chechnya, sort of uh, a, a very pro-Putin figure. He's a young, quite a young guy. Um, likes posing on Instagram with firing off AK-47s and doing all sorts of quite wild man stuff like that. Um, and yeah, ex- you know, extremely right wing. Um, and, and likes to say some controversial stuff in in, in the Russian media. Um, yeah, so it's interesting. So, so we've essentially had the, had the Russians um, make some sort of veiled threats about nukes. Um, I think particularly when Russia made so you know a couple of weeks ago, the, the Russians formally annexed um, parts of, uh, of of eastern Ukraine, the, the sort of Donbass region, which is the the Donets and Luhansk People's Republics they were before. So previously. These two small sort of um, republics um, in 2014 essentially kind of broke away from Ukraine. It was styled very much as it was a people's uprising. You know, th- these were pro-Russian people, but it was very much themselves having an uprising um, against the Ukrainian state, um, really in reaction to the Ukrainian, Ukraine's move towards the EU and, and that these two republics wanted to move more towards Russia. You know, in reality, there was a huge amount of... Um, uh, proxy forces and support from the Russians to actually enable this this breakaway, and we saw this kind of like slow, small scale war going on there. And that's where uh, the Russians have solidified their gains. So you know the war's not been going very well for them. They sort of fallen back to the the backstop option, really, um, which is these two uh, republics um, in in the Donbass, and they've essentially kind of now codified them and said these are now part of Russia. They were Russian leaning before, and pretty heavily Russian leaning. But they're now the, the Russians. The Russians are saying are legally part of Russia, 
um and also some some slightly additional land to, to the south there's now a, a land bridge between crimea and uh and russia that sort of didn't exist before crimea was almost out like a little island on its own um so them being labeled as now part of russia is quite interesting when it comes to nuclear weapons um and and the you know the, the russians policy on, on when they will use nuclear weapons yeah so the russian nuclear doctrine says that it's when the russian state is a threat or the very nature of the state's a threat is when they can employ nuclear weapons which is particularly handy for them because it is so vague and that's what's allowing them to make these veiled threats and have the world feel that they're truly there one thing to consider is that you know they haven't actually specifically said anything and actually it plays to their advantage to use these veiled threats because the uncertainty works really well for them and actually you know looking throughout the whole of this conflict and wider in a lot of the actions that russian takes internationally it's veiled threats and its employment of fear have always worked very well for it you know we know that throughout the cold war for example the russians had huge numbers of tanks and nukes um as part of their wider bloc versus nato but what we don't know is how effective they actually were. Looking at the Russian forces that have employed today, it might have been that they had huge numbers, but they weren't particularly effective. But the fear they employed by having those numbers was incredibly effective. And that's a great tool for them to use when it comes to negotiating, um, if that's how this war gets ended, um, or just trying to keep the West at bay with the amount of support that it's offering Ukraine. Yeah, it's that kind of like, uh, they're great, aren't they? The, uh, the sort of like international you know, marketing side of it, the, the propaganda side of it. Um, you know, they've never formally said, we're going to nuke you or anything like that. And as you say, even their own doctrine, you know, they're sort of their high level documents that, that in theory, at least, say how they, they're going to fight. Although I'm not sure how much sway we put in it. Um, yeah, so what was it actually that was made as a threat by Putin about nuclear weapons? Well, it really doesn't kind of exist. It was, as Matt said, very very kind of veiled. There's a lot of like plausible deniability that the Russians can never say that they were the ones threatening it. Um, uh, Putin essentially uh, claimed, you know, probably without evidence, but um, that NATO policymakers had, be, had been discussing using weapons of mass destruction Again, he's not specifically saying nuclear weapons. Weapons of mass destruction. You know, where where do you draw the line of what's mass destruction? Do you say like a great big conventional bomb is uh, actually that's quite a lot of destruction, and that's mass destruction. You know, I think commonly we think of nuclear weapons, biological weapons, chemical weapons uh, within that, but um, it, it, it could be interpreted quite quite vaguely. And then he reminded NATO that Russia possesses more of these weapons of mass destruction than they do. <laughs> So just that little hint of like, yeah, you you might have a big stick, but we've got a, we've got an even bigger stick. Um, you know, we, we, so yeah, it, it, there's there's been no sort of direct talk about this, and and actually, if you look at it, it's not like the, this capability of the Russians using nuclear weapons um, in this war has emerged out of nowhere. You know, it's been there since the beginning. It's I think it's just become quite a, a an in vogue thing to talk about at the moment. Um, and so yeah, and 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 so so we, we thought rightfully on, on the on the podcast we should we should give it a quick discussion. I, th- I think your point about invokes a really really good comment because how much of this is actually you know Russia has made a very veiled statement about the issue and Western media 
and as well as Russian state media have just run with it and taken it out of control. And because it's brought it to the forefront of everything everyone's talking about, and you know, to an extent, rightly so, because it is such a critical topic. How much of this is actually a deliberate ploy by the Kremlin to get it to the forefront of everyone's minds to influence decision making for everyone outside of their sphere to enable their operations to enable the success of their mission? It's really important factor to consider that you know there might be no intention to use them at all because the fact is that you know if they do use them much as it could bring some success there's actually some big negative sides to it for one um and i think we'll talk about the difference between uh, tactical and you know mainstream nuclear weapons a bit later on but the impact might be very small on a dispersed force they're also going to bring radiation into an area near their own country and it might mean that a lot of the countries that have been not necessarily turning against them, uh, maybe not supporting them, but certainly not turning against them, might actually start to turn against them. And it could further draw a, a breach between Russia and its former, former Soviet states. You know, there's a lot of negatives for them taking that step. And even if they do go to take it, moving nuclear weapons is not a simple task. Even with a huge amount of deception, you're still going to have a large and secure convoy that is going to be a very obvious movement that will be able to be tracked yeah no it's it's a great point um you know that the value of the nuclear weapon is is the kind of um is is the human and the political and the, and the societal reaction that people have to it rather than the weapon itself however i think it's worth us, us briefly talking about because we said we would and i think it's an important distinction to talk about Okay, so a country's decided it wants to use nuclear weapons. Um, what type of nuclear weapons are we talking about, and and kind of what's the effect, and, and what's the desired purpose? Um, you know, it's not just a, a you know, evil guy wants to destroy the world. There's uh, tactical reasons to use nuclear weapons on a battlefield, and so we'll talk about that. The first type of weapon uh, distinguish between two types of, of of nuclear weapon as they're usually classified. Um, so nuclear weapons generally are classified into tactical and strategic nuclear weapons. Um, strategic nuclear weapons is what everybody thinks about when we talk about nuclear weapons. It's the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's the gi- giant Tsar bomber the Russians tested in the in the 70s that you know was, was a thousand times more powerful than that. The sort of thing that's, that's designed to, to level Washington, D.C. or Moscow um, and essentially bring, back, bring about really the, the kind of end of the world type thing. Um, so you know, so the size of the weapon is 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 a lot is really large. So they're really big, um, high kind of uh, amounts of kilotons in the in the size of the, the nuclear payload. The method of delivery is um, tends to be the 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 ICBM, the intercontinental ballistic missile, either launched from from submarines or from um, uh, underground sort of silos. Um, well, they sometimes have some sort of ones that can drive around on trucks and launch from from areas you wouldn't you wouldn't expect. Um, these are the real kind of like world enders. This is the fi- this is the final big stick you've got. The moment you're using um, you know uh, uh, strategic nuclear weapons. Um, interestingly, that's the kind of like you know, Britain's nuclear capability is 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 purely one of those. We have a we have Trident, which is 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 a strategic nuclear weapon um, launched from submarines. So that's the, that's that's the the first kind of category, and I think that's what everybody thinks about. But really, what all the pundits, you know, are, are talking about in in uh, Ukraine 
although in, the Russians have not made this distinction, we must we must say, are talking about what's called tactical nuclear weapons. <clears throat> and the difference there being these are much smaller um, payloads. You know, the, the, the size of the nuclear device is, is much smaller and it's designed to be smaller. It's designed that it has a limited, more controlled effect over a, over a specific area, a specific target. Um, it tends to be launched as different methods. It can be kind of air launched. Um, it could, could be on a, on a cruise missile, a cruise missile being, you know, essentially a low flying missile that flow, flies re- relatively fast and kind of hugs the terrain to avoid being shot down. Or the most effective method um, are some sort of like medium, short to medium range uh, sort of rocket systems. So similar to the ICBM, but much smaller um, and generally portable on a vehicle. So the, the Iskanders, the classic one that the Russians have used in, in previous conflicts, really high technology stuff. Um, I think it's got a range of about 500 kilometers. So essentially you could launch it from in, you know, fairly comfortably inside Russia and you could hit pretty much most targets in Ukraine, but you're not going to hit Russian, Washington, D.C. And the purpose of these weapons is... Um, to really is when you're getting it outmatched on a conventional battlefield so you're getting outmatched by normal armed forces tanks infantry artillery and you're like how do we slow these guys down well we drop a little small nuke on them um and that is the the, the tactical we- nuclear weapon um matt i don't know if you've got some I've, I've rambled there for a bit but you've got some some points to add um quite an interesting topic yeah, and I think the other thing to note is it can go even lower down than those Iskander missiles. You know, some of the functional pieces of Russian artillery that normally just fire explosive, high explosive shells, for example, some of those actually have um, the ability to fire very small um, munitions. Um, and, you know, apart from the fact that you can very rightly identify it's, it's there to try and slow down the enemy on the battlefield. Um but it's actually been identified in some cases in a dispersed force, the effect might be very limited. And actually one of the big things it could really achieve is fear and fear of well, how many more times are they going to use these? Um, and that's why it's also been discussed perhaps that they might detonate it elsewhere. So potentially, you know, like North Korea has done a lot of nuclear tests despite them being illegal, but deep down underground um, in caves, um, and that might be something the Russians look to do just as a, to increase that veiled threat to do some testing. Because one of the challenges that everyone who has nuclear weapons has is you can test all your components of your nuclear weapon, but you're not testing your nuclear weapon as a whole. So how do you know that it's definitely going to work? Uh, and I did see another source highlight, you know, given the amount of uh, failed fires of munitions that Russia's, Russia has had during this conflict, that could be a very real issue for them. Um, bombs, the bombs would even work. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a kind of uh, I've seen that written in a few places. Yeah, uh, indeed, a great point. You know, they can never test the complete system, can they? Because that's a, a nuclear detonation, and the fact that uh, you know um, what Russia says they've got. Often, a lot of this stuff has become de- decrepit. It's old Soviet equipment um, that has not been well maintained. Well, certainly was not made well maintained in, in the 90s you know the collapse of the soviet union um there was a, i think there's a film they've made about it actually isn't there about the um going in after the the collapse of the soviet union to like keep these these weapons labs from completely deteriorating and, and kind of having uncontrolled leaks of radiation um oh god what's the name of that film um yeah uh, yeah absolutely absolutely fascinating thinking and, and and the effectiveness of the these nuclear devices yeah i think that's a really important one to dispel um this isn't you drop this thing and the whole enemy army dies and and you win 
um you know maybe if the enemy army lined up on a, on a parade square you might have that effect <clears throat> but the reality is modern warfare sees troops dispersed as as much as as, as you as you feasibly, feasibly can split up so you're harder harder to hit it seems every time that uh, uh you know a force goes goes to ground they seek to dig into 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 the into the earth dig dig fighting positions dig foxholes as the americans would call them dig bunkers um or people in in armored vehicles and things like that so the effect isn't necessarily that you're going to have this huge kind of kind of wipe out and interestingly in the cold war there's been a, um, a few release documents that the that nato you know the us and its allies sought to deploy something like oh i can't remember the number it was, it was something in the realms of between is it 80 or 200 i think it was 130 is the figure i've heard 130 yeah, so to stop the Russian advance, um, NATO wanted to put 130 circa around those kind of numbers of these tactical devices onto the battlefield. So we're talking Poland, East Germany. They were going to drop these things to stop the Russians. That's what they calculated. So quite quite a few of them to stop the Russian army, uh, which is a really interesting thing that, you know, this was something that the, that the Americans in the West were prepared to use and recognize the value of these tactical nukes um, back in the, in, in the war. And the, why they used them was because the, the Russians outmatched them conventionally. You know, the, the Soviet army was, 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 was much larger, or certainly the Soviet army that was in Europe, because bear in mind, for NATO to, to kind of really fight properly in Europe, they need to bring all the troops across from the US, and that takes several weeks, um, if not longer, um, whereas the Russian army's there waiting to go. Um, you know, the Russians famously wanted to get... Um, was it the seven-day plan? Seven-day plan to get get to the uh, French coast. They wanted to get f- across Europe essentially in about seven days, and, and the, re- the Americans wouldn't be able to get their troops across there in time. So the the plan to slow down the Russians was these was these detonations. Um, so so that it's not just a, a, a technique that the Russians um, have considered at times. So although the Russians, you know, wheeling this back, although the Russians haven't explicitly said they're talking about tactical nuclear weapons. Um, that's what everybody's kind of assumed um and certainly it's the next step in 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 escalation because it is limited to that battlefield in ukraine and and the reason they're doing it is because the ukrainians are outmatching them conventionally and it's a way of kind of like tempering tempering that down um it's quite interesting i think you made a good point about outmatching the convention there and linking back to your point earlier of the decrepit equipment that we've seen the russians employing it does bring a very real dilemma for them that if they do use a nuclear weapon, I'd say the one thing that is almost certain is that the West will provide support to Ukraine in the form of the best CRN detection equipment, the best protection that it can. So regardless of what other actions the West may take, which remains uncertain, um, I've heard you know, there's a lot of back-channel information going through to Russia about what kind of support the West will offer. I think the one thing that you could almost certainly guarantee is there'd be a huge amount of um, support to them um, to survive radiation and fight in those environments. And if you're, you know, if we see this continuing theme of a lack of equipment, poorly poor equipment coming through that is available, actually by using a nuclear weapon in territory that they don't want to cede, territory they want to take and hold, that could actually really backfire for them 
if the Ukrainians are better equipped to fight in that environment, and it could actually pose a real challenge to them. Um, and that's just something that you know they'd have to consider very carefully about what they're going to do in that case, because they could cede an area of land to the Ukrainians through just not having the right equipment. Yeah, and and it kind of unlocks, um, you know, and it is this dangerous thing of escalation that the Russians do one thing to escalate and the Americans escalate even further. Um, but it has unlocked for the Ukrainians, I think, already. The Americans have promised um, several of their more advanced air defense system. I'm not sure it's the, the Patriots or, or something else. Um, maybe the Patriot is their usual kind of like, um, it's not something else. Go on, Matt. What's the name of it? Um I can't remember the exact name myself, but I know it's not Patriot because a Patriot battery supposedly costs about a billion dollars to set up and employ, which is clearly a huge expense. Um, But I think it's related to the systems that the German army and the Norwegian army are sending across to Ukraine that use the anti-radiation missiles that have already been supplied in huge numbers to Ukraine. Uh, I think that's the system they're looking to bring in. It's a little bit simpler. Essentially, yeah, the Americans have already said because of these kind of sort of veiled threats, they're going to release, more, you know, more advanced weaponry, defensive weaponry um, against kind of missile systems, um, you know, which is an interesting one. And it brings us on to that kind of environmental factor. And, and again, you know, a nuclear device is not something that any environmentalist wants to see happen on a battlefield. Um but I think it's worth um, dispelling a couple of kind of preconceptions. I think people have the idea of the sort of nuclear winter. Um, and I think it's worth discussing kind of where that comes about and why that probably isn't the, the, the situation that nukes were used, would, would come about. So typically a lot of that comes from irradiated material being thrown up into the atmosphere, which tends to happen. Um, essentially, really what we're talking about is like soil and stuff like that. So if, if a nuclear device is hits the ground and detonates as a kind of ground burst munition it will throw as you'd imagine a huge amount of force it's going to throw a, a load of um soil up into the atmosphere and will kind of cre- which is itself irradiated and will create these kind of radioactive clouds and things like that and ca- create loads of problems generally the, the 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 way that these tactical nuclear weapons will tend to function is designed to to be air burst they, they blow up in the air um which is advantageous as a weapon because it means a lot more of the energy isn't soaked up by the ground. It's kind of directed down and out towards all those troops there, as well as obviously some up and out. But it does mean that there's there's a lot less of this um, nuclear material thrown up into into the atmosphere. Um, I mean, let's look at you know the the still in inhab- pretty well inhabited cities in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You know, um, and and there was not that long after the devices were de- detonated, and they're examples of airbursts. So it doesn't result in this kind of nuclear dead zone you know think people look at things like chernobyl problem with chernobyl was that was was the fire you know uh, if if they'd just been the sort of nuclear breakdown yes the immediate area around chernobyl would have been affected but it was the fire putting smoke up into the atmosphere um that was itself irradiated that, that gave it that real kind of like reach um so so i think that's one thing worth considering um matt i don't think we've got any more comments on, on potentially the, the kind of environmental impacts of using some of these devices or the or the impacts on the population of, of ukraine it's, it's tricky i'm not a huge expert in the area but the one thing i think would be very clear is that if you're trying to win over the local population who no matter what you know the biased votes that have happened say you know not everyone in the area does support russian occupation if you start using nuclear weapons 
that is going to it will create a culture of fear but actually it's going to upset the population a lot who are going to be concerned about the health issues related to being exposed to radiation um damage to property damage to you know crops potentially because there is a huge um, farming output in ukraine and that could have a you know a wide-ranging effect of turning the population against them um, and also you know when i talk about crops you know that could take away the living for a huge number of the local population because not many places around the globe are going to want to buy food from a place that's been covered in radiation um and you know that's a real challenge given that we've already seen the impact that the conflict in ukraine has had on exports of um both food um and uh compost etc support crop growth manure um you know if this if that became an area that was covered in radiation it's only going to decline the will and then just push up food prices and inflation again so you know even a small weapon could actually have really wide-ranging consequences yeah we God, we should get some farms on here to talk about the the impact because as i believe as i'm led to believe chatting to a couple of them it's um it's been massive um um you know ukraine is a, is a huge flat relatively fertile piece of land like perfect for farming hence hey, i mean look at the ukrainian flag you know the yellow on the ukrainian flag is is supposed to represent wheat sitting underneath a, a sky you know it was it was the bread bar, basket of the of the soviet um the sort of soviet empire um yeah no the impacts would will be absolutely way bigger than the sort of like immediate loss of life um and even the change of the conflict um i think environmentally and it would perhaps even change how the world views nuclear weapons you know there's a fear that if russia gets away with using these tactical nukes does that mean that other people are going to be encouraged to start using them you know we're thinking about the north koreans um the israelis perhaps the um you know india pakistan you know those guys are fighting each other every couple of months let's not forget there's a kind of like small scale border skirmishes still going up going up in the hindu kush um all the time and both have nuclear weapons well, interestingly, we'll, we'll quickly talk about the no first use because we were talking about India and Pakistan. Um, interestingly, two countries that have a policy of what's called no first use. Um, and for those who haven't come across it, that means pretty much what it says on the tin. We will not use nuclear weapons unless somebody else uses, you know, we've got a credible um, evidence that they're going to use nuclear weapons against us. Um, rather than the opposite being a preemptive strike, I'm, you know, I'm going to hit someone with nukes before they can hit me. Um, Matt, what do what, what the Russians and the Americans have policies of at the moment? Uh, well, we discussed earlier the Russian policy, which is the state must be, or the nature of the state must be a threat. Um, I don't actually know what the American policy is. So the Americans still, so both of them have, um, they allow preemptive strikes, essentially. Again, they've, they've kind of put it in these terms of like, if the homeland is threatened. The Americans have always had that. Um, and again, the view to kind of like when they haven't got conventional forces overmatched in an area, they've got that ability to to go back on nukes. Um, the British have it as well. The British reserve the right to have a first strike. The Russians, interestingly, under Brezhnev, and then and I think it was eighty two, um, they declared a no first use policy, which is a really interesting one. You know, at that kind of time in the, in the Cold War, um, things weren't particularly going maybe so well for the Russians. And I think sometimes people saw it as a move to sort of not display themselves as such an aggressor and maybe make make a step back towards um towards in- integration with the world so that yeah the russians in 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 eighty two 
um, got rid of uh, said they would they would not use we- um, nuclear weapons um, as a preemptive strike. However, that was reversed in 1991. So after the fall of the Soviet Union, they 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 kind of gave gave that one up again. Um, I mean, it's interesting. You know, we we talk about all these kind of dictates of what they say they will and won't do, but I think in reality they still got the commit. It doesn't matter what what a country says; they still got the capabilities to do it. And if they're using nuclear weapons, they're probably quite far gone or a further gone past apologizing for going against their policy. You know, um, they're probably not going to be too worried about that. Um, bollocks. And I think this nicely brings us on to a theory which you mentioned at the beginning of the episode, which is escalate to deescalate. And I think it's quite key in a lot of this. It's seen as a classic of the, of the, of the Russian playbook, but I think we should go into it a little bit. And, it, and it's solving that really difficult problem of how on earth do you end a war? Because that's a difficult thing. A war's gone on. There's been lots of conflict. There's a lot of hatred on each side. There's a lot of loss of 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 life, material. How on earth do you bring those those sides together? And I think there's a few different kind of methods if we think about it. You know, there's the there's a total capitulation, the unconditional surrender, the kind of thing we we we're used to seeing in our history books of the Second World War, the First World War. Destroy a com- country's armies, invade their capital, you know, and bring their people economically to their knees. They've got no choice. They just have to accept whatever terms you give them as the victor and that's obviously not going on in ukraine at the moment we haven't seen ukraine uh you know take it taken apart wholeheartedly that was perhaps initially the russians um aim what hence why they were, they were pushing for um you know I- I- invading kiev or, or kiev sorry um you know and, and seeking to out outwardly destroy the the ukrainian army and that's clearly not been achieved now and now that that there's a move to settle for more limited objectives so that, that that's not going to happen there's some sort of like amicable people just come to terms and and then uh settle their differences yeah the, the, that's more of a sort of coming together when both sides agree to just um agree to, to disagree and, and settle their differences there pretty unlikely or we see a sort of stalemate scenario where essentially the war kind of just stops and like nobody signs an official peace treaty or anything like that but they sort of just stop fighting each other because they both run out of energy and willingness to do it and they're still kind of outwardly saying that we're, we're enemies but then they're just not really actively fighting with you the, the classic example is the korean conflict still technically at war each, with each other but de facto they've had a peace treaty you know they've, they've not really been fighting each other um for a while but the russians have the, this this technique of the way to to end a war is to kind of threaten that the war will get even even bigger and de-escalate de- de- sorry escalate to de-escalate so they, the, the idea is they bring war to a point where it's about to become so terrible and so destructive that people do not want that to happen you know and the classic method of that is nuclear weapons you know if we threaten to use nuclear weapons everyone's like we, we don't want that we don't want to end the world so we're willing to come to the the, the peace table um, and I think that's perhaps what we're maybe seeing here with this, this threat and use, use of nukes. Um, I know, Matt, you've got some interesting thoughts on where the conflict might be going and that the conflict might be winding down and, and how Russia's behaviour is um, kind of inferring that they might be winding down and hence using these threat of nuclear weapons as a tool to kind of escalate, to, de- to de-escalate. Yeah, I mean, so... It's very clear a lot of the analysis that's coming out um, suggests that Russia is facing quite an increased level of complexity in how it's enabling its forces to conduct uh, warfare. 
and you look at the bridge attack that happened recently just off the coast of Crimea, you know, that's actually put a further burden onto Russian supply lines to its its front line. Um, there's questions over wavering support within Russia, kind of from two angles, one being for people that don't want the war and one people from who basically think that Russia would be going a lot more aggressively into the conflict. Um, and then, you know, there's just the longer economic impact of all these sanctions. So there's there's a lot of reasons for Russia to kind of consider to, to, to escalate. And so I think there's two things to talk through is, you know, um, why they want to try the escalate to de-escalate, some of the things that we can see that they're already doing, um, and then why they'd want to end the war in the current situation. So if we talk about the you know, re- ways they're going to escalate first, um, and there's lots of interesting analysis on escalation you can get very linear examples such as khan's escalation ladder which is a very simplistic view but you can get much more complex uh, versions because escalation isn't necessarily a linear thing so i've kind of picked out uh, i think it's four things i've got here um that i think we should just quickly kind of touch on um you know directly linked to the attack on the bridge um was the return of strikes in the city um you've got a new general in charge of russian forces in ukraine um, the mobilization and then the task force that's appeared in Belarus. Yeah, so some um, you know evidence that it's not just the nuclear weapons that they're potentially using at the moment to escalate things. You know, some of these these, these strikes on the cities, these emergence of, of more hardline leaders onto the front um, is kind of hinting that there's this escalation. Um, you know, and I suppose the first question when we when we talk about this, well, maybe they are just escalating. Maybe this is a new phase of the war, and they're going to use nukes and they're going to advance into it. But it just doesn't seem to fit. You know, all the evidence is saying that the Russian army is getting tired, running out of supplies, having to rely on on conscript soldiers. You know, and, and a big, uh, you know, interesting problem with some of these conscript soldiers. There's a sort of general acceptance um, in kind of military theory that less well-trained troops, less motivated troops can be sort of reasonable in defense. You know, you, you sort of sit them in a defensive position and say, if anyone comes this way, you shoot at them. That's, that's a relatively militarily simple thing to do, you know. Um, however, if you're asking troops to advance and take a position, that's a lot more difficult. You know, they're having to expose themselves to danger. They're, gonna, they're having to um, execute command and control combined arms tactics communication is a lot more difficult to go and attack somewhere rather than you sit in this position anything comes your way you you know you you, you fire at it um so the, the capabilities the russians have at the moment with these massed conscripts is a lot more defensive um and then there's also the kind of the point of like what are the end end war goals you know what advancing now what are they hoping to achieve if they can advance another 10 kilometers further they've now essentially seized that kind of like heartland of the donbass they've got the land bridge corridor to um crimea this could be acceptable conditions to leave the war with for the russians um and 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 so the thoughts is that they're potentially going defensively so you say why why are they doing these aggressive maneuvers if they're going defensively that the conclusion has to kind of go towards um towards kind of kind of escalation um oh, sorry escalation to, to de-escalate um and that's the interesting thing you know what is russia's exit strategy from this war you, you know you see a lot of in the in the western news channels that uh the answer to the war is russia you know ukraine completely dominates russia and and russia leaves leaves ukraine i mean the realities are it's, it's never going to go that that fairy tale in that fairy tale manner you know, there's never going to be the 
the Ukrainians completely de- defeat the Russians. The Russians say, "Yeah, fair one, mate. You've you've got us. Um, we'll leave you and let we'll let you have Ukraine." It's just not going to happen that way. So actually, there's an argument, you know, that this threat of nuclear weapons, this kind of like escalate to de-escalate, in terms of a global view on conflict, could be um, signalling the end of the war and, and could be um, potentially uh, in in the long run a positive thing for kind of world conflicts because it means that the conflict in Ukraine is is, is settling down. However, you know, however difficult that is for you know the the, the Ukrainians, um, it could be in a signal that the, the war is coming to a close, which could be good news. Yeah, and you know, things considered is that regardless of the fact that you know, the Ukrainians have made these huge advances, very impressive advances as well, and it's uncertain on what the impact of winter will have on the ability to manoeuvre in this conflict and also you know, on what it will have on those taking part in the conflict itself. Russia does still control a huge amount of Ukrainian territory, and that is a good position for them to end in. Although they don't necessarily control all of the territory that they want to, they do still control large swathes. It allows them to come away with more than what they had to start with. As they tend to take on, you know, increasing challenges. So, you know, much as mobilisation works as one of these threats of escalation to show the comp- the the conflict getting worse, they've suffered a huge amounts of losses, both in their service personnel but also in the equipment the ammunition they have um you know and that's that's a good time for them to go as long as they can keep it kind of vaguely under wraps about the challenges they're facing but they can have this threat of escalating by bringing more and more people to the front lines that's another reason for them to consider about how they want to end this conflict and actually if you're you know your point is right about defensive nature that these conscripts can hold the line because of the numbers that they provide you know that's that's another good position for them to be in um, and they also want to think about their position on the international stage. They're slowly becoming more isolated. And if they did actually turn to use nuclear weapons, that could actually backfire for them on the international stage. And right now, you know, what they've proved is that they can get away with quite a bit. Um, and if they can do that, then actually it might mean that if they chose to do something like this again, they might become less isolated because they've done it before. And the consequences have seen seem to be not that bad. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a really interesting one. You know, even if, if they use these nuclear weapons, how would that change kind of Russia on the world stage? We've got a pretty negative view by a lot of countries, but actually, no, you know, it's not it's not um, unanimous. There are still some countries supporting Russia. If you start throwing around nukes, does 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 that change change the ballpark for for a lot of people? Change the ballpark for China? You know, God. Um, and you know, and, and and let's also look at the slight climatic conditions now that are, they're hinting that this might slow down. We're now in the the famous kind of mud season that happens twice a year in Ukraine, the Rasputista, Ras, Rasputitsa. Yeah, I did pronounce that right. Yeah, um, I probably didn't pronounce it right, but I tried. Um, you know, famously has slowed down armies. You know, the, the German army had huge issues with it in the Second World War, and essentially means that fighting has to stop in the autumn and the, and the spring for a while. And then we're coming into a winter period, you know, probably quite a harsh Eastern European winter where, you know, there's there's a lot of reports that the Russian army don't have the kind of like cold weather equipment to really kind of weather it, it particularly. So it's all hinting that really if there's going to be proper fighting, it probably couldn't happen until the next summertime, um, which is quite a long way away to wait. Um, so I think the conditions are, are really set for um, a lot of this at the moment. And, and 
it'll be interesting to view you know what happens with the conflict over the next the next few months what happens with the ukrainians are, are the re- ukrainians going to settle for this kind of um this end to a conflict um because it's a difficult one f- for them to say you know to, to say that they'll just relinquish part of their territory um and that maybe we'll see this kind of like ceasefire zone we'll see this sort of north korean style um you know a ceasefire but not but not a peace treaty um that in itself will be fascinating times on the international stage you know who's going to be the broker of the peace it's probably not going to be the americans they're too um contentious it might be someone in between it might be someone like china you know it might be someone um like it could be a nato country that's maybe less less um aggressively involved could be someone like canada um japan you know a country that's that's perhaps less contentious could be brokering a peace that could be a really interesting place on the on the international stage of who is brokering that piece. Yeah, and then the other challenge will be if it does come to a sort of somewhat inconclusive end. You know, there's some real real risks there. You talked earlier about like the India Pakistan Chinese borders that are all very fluid, overlapping, competing claims as to what's where. That could pose some real problems. Especially, you know, the one thing that sits in my mind for Ukraine and the reason that Ukraine would probably want to continue to push is if it does come to an inconclusive ceasefire end, that could allow Russia to realign, retrain, build up its numbers and its equipment again, possibly faster than Ukraine can, and then to make an offensive action again and to do, you know, what clearly its current objectives are, which is to one, secure the Donbass, but two, cut off Ukraine's access to the Black Sea. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, you know what, and what is that? And that's a really interesting one. You know, to, to finish on, what is Russia's end goal in this now? What was it even before? Because I think people kind of envisaged them completely um, walking over the whole of Ukraine and kind of occupying it. You know, occupied France. We think of the Germans in, in 1940. Occupation is really, really taxing on a military. You know, it's very difficult to occupy occupy a land that doesn't want to be occupied and quite costly in resources you know again we use that example of the germans you know we think of occupied france occupied france was only half of france you know they they there was a reason that they that the germans the south of france you know they they essentially had kind of french sided with the germans we had with vichy france you know french people ruling other french people because it was a huge burden to occupy um such a large country you know so were russia's goals ever to occupy the whole of ukraine perhaps not you know they might have seized the capital and they might have deposed the government but i don't think it was ever to kind of have troops stationed in every ukrainian town because it's just unachievable in such a large country um so maybe the russians are are, are leaving with a, a reasonable state of affairs compared to their initial war aims um and that will that will again push us towards that them being more satisfied with the the state of the of the conflict so I think all in all, uh, a really interesting topic this week. We've talked about the kind of use of nuclear weapons and, and how that relates to Ukraine. Um, you know, obviously a, a, a pretty horrendous conflict going on generally. And the fear is that it will get more horrendous and it will spread more with these kind of weapons of, of mass destruction. Um, I think our conclusions are quite solidly that it's, uh, and probably quite hopefully, that, it, that nuclear weapons are only being used as a threat and a threat to, of um, escalation actually in order to bring the war to a close and hopefully dis- de-escalate the conflict. Um, 
interesting times in world politics, um, interesting times in, in military fields. Um, we'll keep posting as soon as there's changes in, in Ukraine and we'll, and we'll discuss them. Um, and hopefully you guys have been enjoying this so far. If you're enjoying the pod so far, um, please give us a, a, a like and a share. As, as a brand new podcast, your, your shares to your kind of friends and family are absolutely vital for, for us growing. So please, if you're enjoying it, give us a share. Matt, thank you very much for joining us again this week. Thank you for having us on. Um, and hopefully we'll, you'll be hearing from us again soon. All right. Thanks, guys.